0: This Evening here will be in First Timothy four verses one through five. First Timothy four one through five. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." And will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Lord, so we hear this. Final words of the Apostle Paul, we study them these next few weeks. We ask that you would help us, Lord, to hear the passion, <coughs> hear the desire, hear the urgency in the voice of Paul as you have inspired him to write these words, Lord. I want us to be people of your book and people of your word. And so, Lord, I take this charge to heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to fulfill it and to live it out. And for us, Lord, may we be people who desire to hear from your word each and every time we gather together because we want to, Lord, grow in your grace. Grow in your mercy and grow in our knowledge, our understanding, and our love for you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, The Apostle Paul here, he's finishing up this book and he comes in here at the end, this part, and there's (coughs) really nothing that it feels like to me he leaves out. He gets right down to the very nitty-gritty, the most important things, I think, that Paul would say when it comes to ministry. And the reason why I say that is because this charge that he gives us here in the very beginning that he gives to Timothy is so powerful. I mean, he begins here with chapter 4. Now, he's already charged Timothy Once in this book and once in 1 Timothy with a similar charge, but this one here takes Timothy, points Timothy right to the coming kingdom, and points him at King Jesus and says, He's going to judge you. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. Um, that's just an incredible charge. If, if you are a godly person, you have a spiritual, a Christian bone in your body, you are doing two things. awaiting, You're loving the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, and you're awaiting his second coming. Those are two things that you're doing. Maranatha, you know, there's the, very last portion there in the book of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's the heart's cry of Christians all throughout church history. And here, I think that we can safely say, I don't think Paul at this point is expecting Jesus to come back before he's done. But I think there might be a sense where he's expecting Jesus to come back before Timothy is done. But here, let me just go over a couple things with you because I think that we need to have this routine and regular reminder of the judging Jesus Christ. There's an awful lot about his love. I talk a lot about his grace and his mercy. Those are always good and important truths to have right out front and center. But I can never do that and we can never do that to the exclusion of, Of Jesus Christ, the judge of the world. Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's a much different message than, I think, if we were to have gone and visited other churches here today on this Lord's Day, that we would hear. I would be very surprised if there were um, very many churches emphasizing and looking at the judgment of God. But it's important clearly in Paul's mind to emphasize that as he's encouraging, he's charging Timothy. It's, he's getting Timothy and he's saying, shaking him a little bit here at the very end and saying, I know you've heard all this stuff. I know I've been long-winded. I know I've gone and on and on and on and on and on. But Jesus is coming back. It's important that you hear this. It's important that you do this. And the judgment that's coming is not just for Timothy's sake. It is, but it's to give him a perspective as he interacts with the world around him. Look at the end of verse 5 there. Do the work of an evangelist. What is the motivation for an evangelist? It's that people are under the wrath and judgment of God, they are by nature children of wrath. And the judgment of God motivates the evangelist to go and, at least it should, motivate the evangelist to go and proclaim and share the gospel. The reason why I would want to make friends with people so that I can share the gospel with them, why I want acquaintances that are unbelievers is because I really do believe that if they don't turn and repent, that there is going to come a time where they will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so we want to have this perspective, I think, as much as Timothy does, although it's certainly a charge that has and I think ought to have as much or maybe more weight to those who regularly preach the word of God. But here, look with me at a couple passages. First of all, in Romans chapter two, Romans chapter two. Beginning in verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each one according to his works. To those who by patience and doing well seek for glory and honor and immortality, well, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, don't obey the truth, but instead obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil First, the Jew and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek for God shows no partiality. This is the motivation, right? We go to people and we warn them of the judgment to come. And we warn them of the judgment and encourage them to come to Christ because it is God's kindness that leads them to repentance. Because God owes them nothing. The first sin that you or our little kids or my older kids commit, we deserve God's judgment. And the way we know that is guilt. The way we know that is your little kids, once they do something they know they're not supposed to, hide it. They tuck it away or they hide away or they try to do something in quiet. That's why in the house, when you hear it's all quiet, you know there's something wrong going on, right? It comes real quickly. But what we, the reason why we point that out is because what we want to do is be realizing that God does not owe us salvation. Instead, it's his kindness that gives it to us because he is obligated to judge. He's not obligated to show mercy and grace. Instead, that's what he in his kindness extends to people. Mercy and he extends grace. So the charge to Timothy is this serious, it's blood earnest, it is life or death hanging in the balance here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, 4, Paul writes this, For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, and each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, Paul here, he includes himself. Back in Romans <clears throat> chapter 2, he was making a general statement. Of everybody out there. He was talking about the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of salvation. Here he gets very personal and he says, look, I don't know anything that's against myself. But even if I don't know anything, I'm still not acquitted because I'm not the judge of myself. That's the problem in our culture today is people think that they can be the judges of themselves As if people have enough understanding even about themselves in order to make good and wise decisions or just decisions that they think they feel like they need to. The God of our culture is self right now and the greatest sacrament of the God of our culture is choice that you can just choose to do whatever you want to do. Nobody can tell you anything. It's just, you can choose anything that you want to do, no matter what it is, no matter where it is. But that just, it really does display the massive ignorance of people, of all people. I mean, I, I make some stupid decisions and I've made many stupid decisions over my life that I've chosen to do. So I'm not trying to say I'm throwing stones in a glass house, but I'm certainly wanting to hold a mirror up to us so that we see in our society. And you know what? We're not immune to it. (coughs) The fact that our choices reign supreme, they don't. Our choices have consequences. Everybody's choices has consequences. They don't live in a bubble. And Paul here is saying, even if I feel like I think, I examine myself, I scrutinize my life. Even if I think I've made all the right decisions that are consistent and biblical, I'm not the judge. God is. I don't equip myself. You see, that's completely, completely backwards of the way the world thinks. The world thinks you can and do judge yourself. You are the only one who can judge yourself, in fact. You're the only one who can examine yourself and know what's right and wrong for you. And Paul says, absolutely not. Paul says, God is the one who knows. And there is a day coming where God, and we will have to stand before the Lord, Paul himself, me, myself, all of us, ourselves, will have to stand before the Lord on that day. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, 2 Corinthians five, Paul says, we are always of good courage. This is verse six. <clears throat> we know that while we were at home in the body, We are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, right? I mean, that's just simple. We live here. God, we don't see Him. He is invisible, and so we don't see Him. So we walk by faith and not by sight. We would rather be there in His presence than be at home in these bodies. So Paul goes on to say in verse 9, Whether we... Are at home in these bodies or away, dead, we make it our aim to please him. For the reason why we want to live lives that are pleasing to God is because whether it is, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether it is good or whether it is evil. We will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And as we appear before His judgment seat, we are going to have to give an account. And we will receive what we have earned from the Lord. Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, says that there are many people who are going to come to Him on that last day. And they're going to say as they're confronted with the reality that God is casting them out of his presence, say, whoa, 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 we did good stuff. We did all of these wonderful things. And he's going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. The knowledge of God is what brought reconciliation to Anybody's hearts who stands before the Lord. And the reason why the charge is so urgent from Paul is he's trying to get sinners reconciled to the God who they stand under his judgment. God and Jesus Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, he is coming again. He is building his kingdom And in his kingdom there is a standard, and that standard is God's holy righteousness. And so therefore, in light of God's righteousness, in light of the judgment to come, in light of the second coming of Jesus Christ, in light of him being the King of kings and Lord of lords of every single soul that exists, Paul commands Peter, preach the word. This is the means by which we can be saved. Paul in Romans chapter 10, you know the passage. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. See, faith comes through hearing the word of God and hearing it over and over and over and taught and in Given to us in many different ways, in many different settings. But the Bible, the scriptures, the word of God is the means, the hope by which we have for salvation. Many times in my life I have been content to give somebody a Bible. I remember when we were down on 3rd Street that I had a stack of Bibles next to my desk Because we regularly and often had people who just walked in. They walked by and saw the sign and popped their head in and were like, this is a church. And you never knew what was coming. It could have been a hostile, antagonistic conversation, which I had several times. It could have been a wonderful, delightful conversation. And then there's lots of them in between where people are just curious and wondering and what some people might call seeking we know there's none who seek after God, that God is the only one who seeks out anybody, right? But we still do see these curious people and they would pop in. And one of the things after talking with them for a little while I would love to do is give them a Bible. And even if they say, oh, 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 I already have one. I'd say, that's OK, because I want to give you this one and I want to show you where to read. And I'd take them to the Gospel of John or I'd take them to the Book of Romans and I'd show them right there with page numbers handed to them, and then as they went on their way, I was like at least confident, well, they're going to hear the word of God. They heard it from me, they'll hear it as they read it, but I am not just commanded to pass out Bibles. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing to do, but I'm commanded to preach the word, and then he breaks this down, what this preaching of the word is going to look like. First of all, Preaching the word means that I am required, if I'm going to be a preacher of God's word, to be ready in season and out of season. What does that mean? Well, Paul is a seasoned preacher and teacher of God's word. There there aren't two different, can I just, little bonus, there aren't two different gifts, preaching and teaching. (laughs) Somebody said, That their gift and their calling was to be a preacher, not a teacher. Yeah, if you're a preacher, you're a teacher. And if you're a teacher, you're a preacher. I mean, certainly there's a way to talk and emphasize. And some people are a little more yelly than others. But you're doing both. So in preaching the word here, notice, preach the word, and he concludes with teaching. Because they go together hand in hand. You can't do one without the other. But you're to be ready in season and out of season. There are just some times where things are hard and things are difficult and it's a slog to get up here and preach. Or it's a slog to go to a study and do a study again. Over and over again. Lots of things can become discouragements and hindrances as you're preaching and as you're teaching and as you're ministering in whatever capacity. Maybe it isn't preaching and teaching. But we're to be ready in season and out of season because oftentimes the Lord uses us in those most desperate, difficult times. And I was walking in here tonight. Father Hanson was still out here. And he came over and gave me a big hug. And he said, how you doing? How's it going? And I'm like, oh, drove to San Francisco today. And he's like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I had to, for my job, I had to drive down to Sacramento, San Francisco and pick somebody up. So I got up at, you know, early, oh, dark 30 this morning and got in the shower and drove on down there and came back and here I am. And he's put his hand on me and he just closed his eyes for a second and said, Lord, you often use this in the times where we are our weakest. And that was it. That was his prayer. That was his little word. And I was like, be ready in season and out of season. I didn't say that, but I thought that in my head. I think of Jesus when he takes some time to go get alone and get away and pray with his disciples because ministry had been crazy in Capernaum and there were so many people that the crowds were just flooding the streets. So he goes away and when he goes away up on the hillside, what happens? But everybody comes and follows him. Or he would go by himself and the disciples would come hunt him down and find him when he was by himself. And he would have compassion on people and he would be ready to teach and instruct and lead and guide them. Be ready in season and out of season and do three things, really. <clears throat> and all three of those things encompass preaching, teaching with patience. Okay? So reprove, rebuke, and exhort all have to be done with preaching and teaching with patience. First of all, reprove. Reprove is not quite so um, harsh as a rebuke, but it's certainly a correction. A, a reprove would be more along the lines of, you remember that story with Peter, where some of the uh, town religious leaders came to him and were like, hey, Does your teacher pay the temple tax? Huh? And Jesus like, or Peter was like, yeah. Duh. Of course we pay the taxes. I know Jesus said pay the taxes. I got it right. He goes back to Jesus and Jesus says, So, you think I'm supposed to pay the temple tax, huh? Who pays the taxes in a royal household? The son? Or the people who are the subjects to the son? Peter's like, uh... The subjects, you're right. Go down and go fishing. What humbling thing, right? For Peter, the fisherman with boats and nets going out in the middle of the sea and pulling in big, huge nets of fish to go sit on the side of the sea with a pole, right? That's got to be humbling for him. And of course, you know, he catches that first fish and pulls it out. That in my mind is a reproof. It's a correction but it isn't like a straight forward just like boy you completely screwed up. It's a correction that is both gentle and instructive. Whereas a rebuke is straight just forward you are wrong. Let's use Peter again. Right? He's a good whipping post sometimes. So Peter there When Jesus is talking to his disciples, and it's the second time, if I remember right, that he tells his disciples that the reason they're on their way down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem is because he's going to go be beaten, put on trial, and eventually be killed. But don't worry, he will rise from the dead. And Peter pulls him aside and says, far be it from you. And Jesus has to look at him and tell him, get thee behind me, Satan. That's a rebuke, you see? That's a straightforward, harsh rebuke. And then there's exhortation. Exhortation, again, let's use Peter. I think of there at the end of the Gospel of John when Peter has been restored to the ministry. Right? Remember he denied Christ those three times? And you know the story. He... is walking with Jesus on the shore. And Jesus for three times asks him, Peter, do you love me? And three times he says, yes, or you know I do, Lord. And each one of those times, Peter is told to feed the sheep. Or we could use the language Paul is using here, preach the word to the sheep. Feed them, teach them, preach to them, encourage them. Now, the reason Paul gives for doing this here is because the time is coming where they, people, will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the truth to wander off into myths. Now, heresy in the church is nothing new. In fact, Paul, remember in the book of Acts in chapter 20, we've used this passage many times in our study of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, rightly so. He said there are going to be wolves who rise up from within the congregation. And they rise up from within the congregation to devour the congregation. So it's nothing new. But we do have modern day equivalents of this. People don't endure sound teaching, so they accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Here, I pulled this from a website. There's a local, I don't know what to call it. Let's call it a ministry school, since that's what they're trying to label themselves as. Let me just read you a few things that I pulled off of this website. And then I want to read you a scripture passage, and I just want you to hear the contrast between the two, okay? Many are hungry to encounter God and see Him move in the world. They want to see lives and communities healed, but they feel inadequate, powerless, isolated, and afraid. Well, Our school will empower you with teaching, mentoring, activation exercises. I have no idea what that means. Self-discovery and conferences to position you to believe and position you to go. However, it's love and power of God that will transform and empower you to become the person who encounters God with you and the world around you. There comes a point where you begin to realize there is more to be experienced in God. A point where you just can't keep what you have to yourself. Hunger and love bring you to the end of yourself. It's a place where you need power. You see and you need Christ to be in the world. You need to see lives, families, communities touched and transformed by the love of God. Something inside you knows it's possible. That's because he's in you. Okay? This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you... And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of this calling and that may fulfill with it and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's Second Timothy 5 or 1, 5 through 12. Just. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? Communities healed. You just feel something. You you need a touch or you need a this or you need a that. It's all you-centered. Everything that I read was you-centered. you centered you, 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 you. You need empowerment, you need activities, you need self-actualization or realization. You need all of these things. Whereas when I just simply read to you from Second Timothy, it was all about the glory of God. And you're kind of secondary. You see, people will not endure sound teaching. This sermon would not preach well in a lot of churches. Because, yeah, it's, it's judgment-heavy. How can it not be? Look what Paul says. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge living in the dead. The entire charge of this entire text is founded, the basis is on the fact that Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, it isn't going to be a positive, encouraging experience. It's not going to be a K-love moment. It's going to be very serious and it's going to absolutely destroy people. And our motivation for sharing them the gospel is because they don't want to hear it. Them not wanting to hear it helps us to know the people who need to hear it. And sadly, these people in these churches are heaping up for themselves teachers that will tickle their ears. Oh, if you just come to our self-realization course. Oh, if you would just do these special tricks. If you would just do this, you can have an interactive experience with the Holy Spirit. As if that was even language the Apostle Paul would have or could have understood. No. No. that's not what's needed what's needed is the word of god rightly preached over and over and over and over with reproving with rebuking with exhorting and complete patience and teaching yes there are going to be people who want to go hear false teachers who want to heap up for themselves weirdness that suit their own passions And we need to be wise. We want to understand that they're out there. We want to know who they are so we can both avoid them and when we have the opportunity, share the gospel with them and share the truth with them. But we don't want to become so obsessed with the false that we forget to focus on the truth. And so we focus on the truth here. And he says for you, as for you, Timothy, always be sober minded. Be clear in your thinking. Be precise. Don't get distracted and caught up. Be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Listen, if there are people out there who are keeping up for themselves teachers to tickle their ears, and we talk with those people, we're going to endure some kinds of suffering. I've experienced it. You probably have too. I remember many years ago here in town there was a bunch of weirdness that came through it always seems like there's a handful of churches that just like are a revolving door for the weirdness here in town and the weirdness comes and then it does its thing in the lobby and then it kind of goes and a new weirdness comes in and this particular weirdness came in and I've talked about it before where in order to do any type of Gospel work, what needed to happen was all the demons needed to be cast out of town. And we can't do, God is incapable of doing work in this town until the gospel, until the demons have been expelled. So there's no point preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, preaching the word like it says here, until we go do the demon work, until we go do this warfare. Of course we knew that was wrong, and so we talked a lot about it talk to people about it and i ended up losing friendships over it some people got really upset about the fact that we had a big huge thing where we got together many churches and taught here's what's being taught in this community we need to teach against this we need to believe the truth of god's word and it divided this town for a long time now there's a lot of Churches doing a lot of things together, supposedly in the name of unity. But what it really is, oftentimes, is in the name of we are having our ears tickled. I'm doing these good works with all these other churches, and I'm not worshiping on a Sunday morning because it makes me feel good. I feel like I'm doing God's service. I go to these where I can stand up and I can do this particular thing or I can go to a place and I can hear a message that makes me feel good about myself or maybe helps me figure out how I can live my better life so that I can be more successful and I can do, I can do, I can do. And it's all focused on you. Beloved, you are not the ultimate character in your story. God is. Jesus is. This is how a pastor fulfills his ministry. The very last phrase here in our text. It's hard. It's it's clearly not popular. But my responsibility is not to point you to you, but to show you who you really are and then point you to Jesus. My responsibility is to be one who picks up the word of God Here's what it says and say, here's what the Bible says about you. Repent and believe. Embrace the gospel. Love the gospel. Because there is a time coming. Jesus is going to return. And he, when he returns, it's not going to be a secret rapture. Right? He's not coming. Shh, I'm just taking my peoples out of here. It says he's coming with all of his saints. He's coming down and he's coming with wrath and vengeance and fire. And with that eminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ in my mind, I feel the same charge to preach the word that Timothy does. And I'd hope that what we would walk away from here tonight is hearing the seriousness, the radical nature of the word of God preached, the word of God taught, and understand that this is the truth of my life. I love you, Jesus, because you have saved me from this judgment to come. That I can say, like Paul, I can judge myself all day long, but that doesn't matter. I'm not acquitted. Christ is the one who acquits me. God is the one who acquits me. God is the one who's made me righteous. God is the one who's made me whole. God is the one who saved me from my sins. And so... We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy that just shines so brightly, Lord, when we think about the judgment that is coming. When we think about the truth that someday you are going to return to this earth with your angels, and it will be a time of great fire, of destruction, and great, great wrath, Lord. I thank you for saving us from that day. But Lord, I pray also that that day would be a motivating factor for us to share the gospel with those of us around, who are around us who are not yours yet. Or those who profess your name, but they're heaping to themselves teachers to tickle their ears. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the book that we have here with us that helps us know you better and love you more. May we always look to it for our guidance and may we always see you as the center of our lives, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.